It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. You know, I got to tell you folks something, and I think you can see it now too. One of the reasons I use this platform and my books, one of the reasons, one of the reasons this is important to me, is to try and push the national debate. Before the book American Marxism came out, people weren't talking about Marxism. Nor were they talking about economic socialism. Oh, they mention it here and there. But more and more people are trying, or people are figuring out the Marxist fundamental foundation to the Democrat Party, to the arguments they make, even to economic socialism, critical race theory, to all these things. I can see Fox Nations working on it now. This is very, very important. We talked about the classrooms, the parents' movement. This is very, very important. And just so you know, I don't let grass grow under my feet. My wife will tell you this. I'm working on another book. It's a tremendous amount of work. I've been spending months thinking about it, writing notes to myself, drafting, ripping it all up, starting all over again, as I did with American Marxism. But it's very important that people know what's taking place. It's like Liberty and Tyranny, which was the foundational book for the Tea Party movement. Or the Liberty Amendments, the foundational book for the Article 5 movement. Now, I understand I'm not going to get these glowing write-ups and so forth, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the head. I'm telling you, you're in the right place. I don't just do hit-and-run radio. I'm not Henny Youngman here cracking jokes left and right. Now and then, I like to crack a joke. We all like to have a good time, but I think this stuff through. And I use this platform, I think, differently than most. Why did I read you this story about Woodrow Wilson? Because the Democrat Party is fundamentally evil. It's fundamentally anti-American. Whether you look at the Civil War, whether you look at Reconstruction, whether you look at post-Reconstruction in the late 1800s, Plessy versus Ferguson, whether you look into the early 1900s with the likes of Woodrow Wilson, whether you look into the 30s and 40s with the likes of Franklin Roosevelt, who was no friend of blacks or Jews or Asians, period. Then when you look in the 1950s and the segregationists, and you look in the 1960s and the filibusters against the 1964, (coughs) excuse me, the 1964 and 65 Civil Rights Acts. And then you look today, where they've abandoned that approach, the party has, the Democrat Party, but they've embraced another miserable approach. And so you hear all this talk about white supremacy now, white domination now, critical race theory. You hear all this anti-family stuff and anti-faith stuff and open borders. 
so that party has genuflected. But it still embraces evil. It still embraces alien ideologies and doctrines. It still rejects the Declaration of Independence, which is the the formal consensus statement of the founding of the nation. It still rejects the Constitution. And so this is very, very important to understand and for us to discuss at length. So that's why I talked about Woodrow Wilson, because most of you don't know about Woodrow Wilson, and yet he was a leading founding father of this American Marxist movement. Of this American Marxist movement. You know, when Marx died in 1883, his writings weren't that widespread. I mean, he wrote a lot, and Engels wrote a lot. His writings weren't all that influential, except with a relative handful of goons and so forth. It wasn't until later when individuals embraced it and started to promote it, including here in the United States. And there were many. And I wrote about them in Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressivism. But Woodrow Wilson was among them. He was among them. He was one of their intellectuals, one of their scholars. And this was the new wave of indoctrination. This was the new ideology, which they call progressivism. First they called it populism, and then they called it progressivism. And you hear the strain of the same arguments out of Joe Biden's mouth, who was also a racist, and has a long history of being a racist. Not just in what he says, but in what he did. And then he decided the better way to gain power and keep power was to repackage. And so now he is the most prominent voice, or I should say uh, body through which, or entity through which, this American Marxism operates, his administration, his regime. This is very important to understand. Now, let me move to a few other issues here. Lindsey Graham's taking a lot of heat because he's proposing, and this is something he proposes every year or two, a national ban on abortion. I think it's up to the 14th or 15th week. And he did it again a week or two ago. And because the media are positioning the Democrats as pro-women, Graham's coming under a lot of heat and attack. We want to discuss inflation. We want to discuss the border. We want to discuss crime. We don't want to discuss abortion. We don't want to defend Trump. And we don't want to do all these other things. Now, ladies and gentlemen, who are we and what are we? This is all McConnellism. We're supposed to push fiscal conservatism, and yet most Republicans in Congress aren't fiscal conservatives, despite what they say. They spend like drunken sailors. The problem is the Democrats spend like drunken Marxists. So I'm just speaking frankly with you. 
When the spending was going on the last several years, you only heard from one voice behind this microphone condemning it. Everyone thought it was a boring subject. Let's get on. We have other stuff. Well, there's a lot to talk about, but that was always important to talk about. Always. And always is. So now they're all fiscal conservatives. I do think we need to run on inflation and run on all these issues. We need to win Congress, both houses. But we ought not abandon our principles. What else shouldn't we talk about that we believe in? The problem is Republicans don't know how to talk. When it comes to abortion, they should focus on where the Democrats are most vulnerable. Where are they most vulnerable? They don't believe on any limits. That's not where Roe versus Wade said or Casey versus Planned Parenthood. They believed in limits. The Democrats don't believe in limits. And what they want to do is impose on the entire country abortion right up to the last second of birth. And Republicans should seize on that. Because the vast majority of America does not support that. And that's why you don't see a single poll from any cable channel, from any newspaper, from any university asking the question, the real question, do you support the Democrat position that abortion should be legal right up to birth? That's their position. Not codifying Roe, codifying death. And what's the science say about that? The science says it's a baby. When you're about to give birth, it's a baby. There's no dispute in that. But it undermines the entire narrative. So you won't hear Jake Tapper talk about this. You won't hear Nicole Wallace talk about this. You won't hear Joe Scarborough talk about this. You won't hear the reprobates, malcontents, and miscreants dressed up as hosts and guests on these cable shows talk about it. You won't see it written up in the New York Slimes or the Washington Compost. You won't see it discussed on the Sunday shows. But I discuss it all the time. Because it's important to understand what the Democrats actually stand for, the most radical most radical form of population control anywhere in the world. We don't treat dogs this way. But here's the problem with Lindsey Graham's proposal. Professor Glenn Reynolds has written about it, and he's 100% correct, and I've mentioned this too. The federal government does not have the authority to do what Lindsey Graham wants to do. It's left to the states, exactly as the Supreme Court said. Congress doesn't have plenary power to pass laws and everything at once. Its actions must, too, have some basis in some part of the United States Constitution. Article 1, as Glenn Reynolds points out, spells out a long list of things Congress can do, but the list, while long, isn't all-embracing. Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, borrow money, declare war, establish post offices and post roads, etc. But wide latitude isn't the same thing as carte blanche. The farthest reaching power of Congress is the power to regulate commerce among the several states, quote unquote. Even since Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and more accurately ever since, he threatened to pack the Supreme Court, 
the high court has given Congress wide latitude in regulating what has come to be called interstate commerce. As recently as in the 1990s, though, the argument that the Commerce Clause would authorize an abortion ban as a regulation of commerce among the several states would have had some force. Yet even then, many Federalists, many of us, would have said no. But since that time, the Supreme Court has spoken. It has agreed, holding repeatedly now, that Congress's power under the Commerce Clause extends only to, well, the regulation of commerce. We have a 1995 case called United States versus Lopez. And we have subsequent cases. And so is regulation of abortion, the regulation of commerce among the several states? It's hard to see how. Abortion is an interstate commerce. It takes place entirely in one state. And regulation of medical procedures is traditionally the domain of the states, not the federal government. So it's a very weak, if not fatal, argument to say under the quote-unquote Commerce Clause, I would argue, that you could even drive the abortion issue through it. So I would say this bill is unconstitutional, and any bill like it is unconstitutional, including if the Democrats pass a bill that states in all cases abortion will be permitted, whether or not any state likes it or not, and so forth and so on. Congress doesn't have the power to codify abortion. And Lindsey Graham's bill, whether you support it or not, is unconstitutional. So the Democrat vote for abortion, for anything, anytime, even up to the last second before birth, is unconstitutional. And Lindsey Graham's proposal, which is not radical in the least, most European countries have done exactly what Lindsey Graham is proposing, which is probably why he's doing it, have embraced his, his idea, but they don't have our Constitution. So it's left to the states. So when you have people out there saying abortion is my number one issue, so I'm voting for Democrats at the national level, why? Number one, they can't do a damn thing about it. And number two... You sure you support them? Because do you understand what they support? Particularly those of you who've had children. Do you know what happens to abort a baby before birth? They take a syringe that's about 12 inches long and they shove it into the soft spot at the top of the head. They have to kill it in the womb. And they drain the brains out. And kill it. Do you know how badly that baby suffers? Just because you don't hear it scream? Do you know how agonizing that is? Your own flesh and blood? It makes me cringe. The Democrats support abortion. Including up to that point, And we even had one. And I'm sure there are others. Used to be the governor of Virginia who supported infanticide. Be careful what you vote for, ladies. The Democrat Party and immigration. The borders are wide open except for their backyards. Isn't it interesting? 
we haven't heard from Barack Obama or Michelle Obama, the king and queen of America, if you will. Some view them that way, for sure. The Obamas have a home on Martha's Vineyard. They weren't asked anything. Why didn't they help these people? 50 migrants. Michelle Obama goes on and on and on, like Castro, all the time, about white privilege. She goes on and on and on about how people of color are mistreated. She being worth hundreds of millions of dollars in a white supremacist nation. But how come, seriously, they weren't asked about this? Strange, isn't it? They have a mansion worth millions on Martha's Vineyard. They have a mansion worth millions in the toniest area of Washington, D.C. They have a mansion worth millions on the island of Hawaii. They have a home worth millions in the Chicago area. God knows what else they have. But I do notice they don't have a lot of immigrants near them or around them let alone people of color in their neighborhoods, in their direct neighborhoods. What's that all about? I noticed the Kennedys weren't asked about the migrants on Matha's Vineyard or whether they should be near the Hyannisport Kennedy compound. Plenty of places that can house these people. Lots of room. Lots of land. Lots of money. It's true. These are all Democrat holdouts and hangouts, of course. What next? Beverly Hills? Oh, my God. Palm Springs? Whoa. What you talking about? What next? Society Hill, Philadelphia. I could go on and on. But whatever you do, don't send them to Washington because Muriel Bowser, the mayor of Washington, D.C., an African-American woman, she says, look, no. No, we can't handle a few thousand migrants. That's okay. 8,500, 8,000 are coming across the southern border every day. Little southern border towns are getting overwhelmed. Towns in the southwest are being overwhelmed. Millions have come across the border. Our party's responsible for it. That is the Democrat Party. Our president's responsible for it. That is Biden. But who cares? It doesn't bother us here in Washington, in New York. Math is vineyard. And then all of a sudden they show up. My God, I thought it was just on TV. Border towns are overrun. But Muriel Bowser, well, she's got the perfect answer. Ready, America? The mayor of Washington, D.C. Cut 10, go. We're not a border town. We don't have an infrastructure uh, to handle uh, this this type of and a level of immigration to our city. But we will will create a new normal here in our infrastructure and have a, a humane welcome for people and an efficient, um, you know, service provision. But we we don't have the ability. We're not Texas. 
Oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? That means we here in Washington, D.C., we're not Texas. Don't overrun us with these foreigners, these people here. We don't have the capacity to handle them. But I would remind Muriel Bowser, these people aren't just hanging out in Texas. The Biden administration has had at least 900 transport, air transports, migrants all over the country. All over the country. And, uh, but the border towns are the hardest hit. You got towns with 34,000 people, 15,000 people. Washington has like five, 600,000 population. What, they, they can't handle it? No, not in our backyard, not in our backyard, no. Then we have State Representative Dylan Fernandez, Representative Martha's Vineyard. He was on WPLG yesterday. Well, Dylan, what's the problem over there at Martha's Vineyard? It's an island, 50 people? What's the big deal? Cut 11, go. My question to you is, if you had gotten notice as a sanctuary state, a sanctuary city, had you gotten notice of this, would this have been okay for you? Well, look, you know, the, these governors are, um, they're trying to create and manufacture a humanitarian crisis, and they want, uh, they wanted to create chaos. Well, I can't you answer the question. Why are they creating chaos? It's called equity. Shouldn't Martha Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard take some people who are needy? I think Martha's Vineyard is a perfect place. I just wish they'd also send them to Rehoboth Beach, right outside of the walled Biden compound, built the compound by the Chinese and the wall by the American taxpayer. Mark Levin. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in America with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, house plants, much, much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. My wife Julie and I decided it was time to add more flowering trees to our landscape, and Fast Growing Tree was a great resource for us. A large selection and no hassle ordering or shipping. This spring, they have the best deals online, up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code LEVIN at checkout. L-E-V-I-N. Now that's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code LEVIN at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code L-E-V-I-N. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Please visit FastGrowingTrees.com for details. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. So we established that Gavin Newsom and Bill de Blasio 
were kidnappers. Did we not, Mr. Producer? And human traffickers. That they bust migrants from their cities all over the country. They didn't do what DeSantis did in a humane way, gave them pamphlets, information about where they can go and who they can contact in Massachusetts, get consent waivers and all the rest. Maybe they did. I don't know. None of them were under investigation. None of this was highlighted by the New York Slimes, the Washington Compost, or the rest of the corrupt Marxist media. None of it. None of it will be reported tomorrow morning on MSLSD or CNN, despite the fact that they hear me saying this right now. Joe Scarborough will do whatever the missus tells him to do. And besides, he's dumber than a doorknob. Over at CNN, they've shaken it up there. But the IQs in that DNA pool remain as low as ever before. America's governor, Ron DeSantis, at a press conference today, cut seven, go. Biden is flying these people all over the fruited plain in the middle of the night. I didn't hear a peep out of those people, okay? I didn't hear a peep. I haven't heard a peep about all the people that have been told by Biden you can just come in and they're going, they're being abused by the cartels, they're drowning in the Rio Grande. You had 50 that died in some shed in Texas. I heard no outrage about any of that. Uh, I haven't heard outrage about all the fentanyl that's come across the border that's killing Americans in record numbers. I don't hear... I don't hear outrage about the criminal aliens that have gotten through and have then victimized people, not only in Florida, but all throughout the country. I didn't hear any outrage about that. The only thing I hear them getting upset about is you have 50 that end up in Martha's Vineyard. Then they get really upset. Now, the media are lining an airport near Rehoboth Beach. Because word has it that Ron DeSantis... Maybe Abbott are sending illegal aliens to Rehoboth Beach. This is something, as you know, publicly, I've been urging. I've been urging. Why shouldn't they enjoy the same ocean, the same bike paths, the same ice cream cones as the zombie president? Peter Ducey asked Biden about this. Cut six, go. Sending uh, migrants to Delaware. Do you have any comment or response to that, sir? He should come visit. We have a beautiful shoreline. He should come visit. We have a beautiful shoreline. I want to ask seriously, MSNBC and CNN, and I want to ask CBS and ABC and NBC, and I want to ask the New York Times and the Washington Post, why aren't you down on the southern border? Reporting about the rapes, reporting about the drugs, reporting about the separation of parents from children. Why aren't you talking about and reporting about the sex trafficking, the deaths, the drug cartels? Why not? Why aren't you going, going down there and reporting? And you know what's interesting, Mr. Producer? Rush Limbaugh used to talk about an echo chamber. And what he meant by that was he would say things and then a day or two later, they would essentially be repeated by others 
in TV and radio. Now, Rush Limbaugh was one of my big buddies. I see that happening with me, don't you, Mr. Producer? And it's happening a lot. And he used to tell me, well, you know, it's flattering. I said, it's not flattering, it's plagiarism. He said, but there's nothing you can do about it. Rush worked very hard at his job. I worked very hard at mine. Mr. Producer, do you write anything for me? Open the microphone. I do you do write not. anything? Do I have writers? Nope. Does anybody write my opening statements or my commentary? Anybody? Nope, right from your head. And if we had Mr. TV producer here, whether it be Levin TV or Life, Liberty, and Levin, I don't use teleprompters. I write little notes to myself from time to time. I don't have writers. All these other hosts do. I don't. So, yeah, I find it annoying, but even my wife says, what are you going to do about it? Just Okay. But I've been pointing out now that whomever the Republicans eventually rally around, President Trump, Ron DeSantis, Cruz, Cotton, just down the list, they're going to go after them. The Democrats are going to go after them with guns blazing. Others are now regurgitating this, but you need to keep that in mind. Again, when people say, look, I like Trump, but I like DeSantis, but there is no but. Even the nebbish Romney, they went after Romney and he's a nebbish. He really didn't offend them, but they had to create stuff like, do you know, he had a list of women candidates. Yeah. So for jobs. Yeah. Do you know when he was in college or whatever, he put a dog in it. Hold on a second. That's what they do. And they're going to keep doing it. Hakeem Jeffries one day wants to be the Speaker of the House. He's a radical moron. But then again, most of them on the Democrat side are. And he held a press conference today. And of course, the media covered it. Why? Because he's a Democrat attacking a Republican. That makes it news. Cut eight. Go. Well, the behavior of individuals like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott is radical, reckless, regressive, and reprehensible. Oh, the four R's. He got all the four R's in there. Radical, reckless, regressive, and reprehensible. And Biden? Remarkable? Help me. What else? <laughs> Go ahead. Start behaving like governors and stop behaving like human traffickers. Oh, human traffickers. They remember a phrase, human traffickers. And so they repeat the big lie like propagandists do. Human traffickers. Really? What about the real human traffickers on the border? They don't care. What about the crime on the border? They do not care. The biggest human trafficker in the world is Joe Biden. He's the biggest human trafficker in the world by the millions. Millions. People suffering. 
Now, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you vote Democrat, you're going to get more of this. There won't even be a fight. The Democrats are doing this purposely. This is a man-made crisis. And anybody that stands up to this, they want to destroy, they want to character assassinate, even though they themselves have done this. They themselves have done this. Newsom with the girly figure. May I just say, I'm just just saying. Uh, we know that DiCamio did the same thing on a massive scale. And we know, of course, that Biden and the federal government have done it over 900 times. Nobody called them human traffickers. The Democrat Party as an institution is evil. It's always been evil. It's always been anti-American. Always. And it still is. It still is. That's why the most aggressive reprobates in the country all are Democrats. And that's why the Democrat Party reaches out to them. Black Lives Matter and groups like that. Years past, it it used to reach out to the Klan. Remember? Oh, Mark, that's so long ago. Actually, it's not. It was the 50s and 60s. But you see, DeSantis and Abbott, they're radical, reckless, regressive, and reprehensible, and they're human traffickers. So this schmuck wants to be the next Speaker of the House because Nancy Pelosi has so lowered the standard that any schmuck could be Speaker of the House. Then there's Raul Ruiz, Democrat, California. Cut nine, go. Well, I I think it's very important to really draw a contrast here because we've seen that the Republican approach to the humanitarian crisis is to create a larger humanitarian crisis. Ah, there you go. First of all, there's only humanitarian crisis because your party, moron, and your moronic president have created it. They've created it. And you're participating in it. That's Raul Ruiz, everybody, from California on MSNBC, because he's a very important voice. Very important voice. But then there's Sarah Carter. She's a real reporter on Fox News yesterday, talking to Elizabeth Bostrom. Elizabeth Bostrom is a Martha's Vineyard resident. A real resident. Cut 10, go. Were you surprised at all when Governor Ron DeSantis decided, okay, you know what, guess what, I'm going to send 50 of the migrants uh, who volunteered to come to this, to come to come to Boston, to come to Martha's Vineyard. Were you surprised when they arrived? No, I wasn't. And I actually, I really praised him for doing that because it wasn't a stunt. I know the media has been saying it's a stunt. But, um, you know, how do you get the attention of, of, of the administration? How do you get the attention of Harris, who's supposed to be in charge of this? That Do you think she's been a good border czar? I don't, it's really a joke, and everyone knows it. Mm-hmm. You mean putting Kamala in charge of the border is a joke? Are you kidding? She was at Claflin University in South Carolina today. And when you listen to the profundity of what she had to say, shame on you for calling Kamala a joke. You must be a racist. Cut 13, go. So we invested an additional $12 billion into community banks because we know community banks are in the community 
and understand the needs and desires of that community as well as the talent and capacity of community. So we invested in community banks because they're in communities and they know what the communities want and they know the desires of the community and the talent and the capacity of the community. So why wouldn't you put such a genius in charge of the southern border? Why wouldn't you? Mark Levin. You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let me show you how dishonest things get. The Trump attorneys have argued, look, we can't go into court right now and make our strongest case on declassification of documents because we cannot show our hand to the Department of Justice should the most outrageous act take place that they indict our client. And so the panel of the 11th Circuit Court says, well... Then we have nothing on the record that tells us that this classified material was declassified. And the special master says the same thing, so he will not review the classified materials. There's a piece at PJ Media by Matt Margolis, who's sharp as they come. And it's entitled, DOJ Claims Trump Did Not Declassify Documents. Oh, really? Last week, Biden's Department of Justice claimed in a court filing that Trump did not formally declassify the documents that he had stored at Mar-a-Lago and requested a partial stay of the order to appoint a special master to oversee the reviewing of the documents. On Wednesday, an appeals court agreed and granted the Biden administration access to the documents again. Quote, in a stark repudiation of Donald Trump's legal arguments, a federal appeals court on Wednesday permitted the Justice Department, this is yesterday, to resume its use of classified records seized from the former president's Florida state as part of its ongoing criminal investigation, so wrote the Associated Depressed. The ruling from a three-judge panel of U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit amounts to an overwhelming victory for the Justice Department, clearing the way for investigators to continue scrutinizing the documents as they consider whether to bring criminal charges over the storage of top-secret records at Mar-a-Lago after Trump left the White House. In lifting a hold on a core aspect of the department's probe, the court removed an obstacle that could have delayed the investigation for weeks. For weeks? Wow, for weeks. The panel argued there's no evidence that any of these records were declassified. Really? No evidence that any of the records were declassified? There's some huge holes in this argument. For starters, Cash Patel, a former top Trump administration official, told Breitbart News in a phone interview in May that the documents were declassified, and he was present for the declassification. And I would add, ladies and gentlemen, he said the same thing to millions and millions of you on my own show, Life, Liberty, and Levin. Did he not, Mr. Producer? 
Quote, Trump declassified whole sets of materials in anticipation of leaving government that he thought the American public should have the right to read themselves, Patel explained. The White House counsel failed to generate the paperwork to change the classification markings, but that doesn't mean the information wasn't declassified, Patel added. I was with President Trump when he said, we are declassifying this information, unquote. Now, should the department be so stupid as to charge the former president, obviously Patel will be a key witness. The article goes on. Then there's the fact that on January 19, 2021, President Trump released a presidential memorandum titled, quote, Memorandum on Declassification of Certain Materials Related to the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane Investigation. So clearly there's documentation of the process showing that at the very least, documents related to Crossfire Hurricane were in fact declassified. Now the whole world knows this. Nobody's hiding this. The whole world knows what I just told you. Whether from my show, whether from now PJ Media, whether from Breitbart, whether from Cash Patel, the whole world knows this. And then I have to hear John Thune, one of Mitch McConnell's flunkies, say there's a process for declassification. There's a process for declassification. These Republicans who've been in Washington way too long, way too long, don't even embrace the Constitution. Because Mark's argument has been from day one, you cannot ignore Article 2. The President of the United States is the executive branch. We're actually going to have judges now second-guess that? That if he doesn't follow some bureaucratic process? Then they talk about him stealing documents under the Presidential Records Act. Now, folks, the fact that the Department of Justice pulled the trigger and turned this into a criminal investigation in and of itself is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. It's disgusting. Letitia James, disgusting. January 6th committee. Disgusting. Now we have an FBI agent who's come forward, and so they're trying to destroy him. You see, the Whistleblower Act only applies to leftists. It doesn't apply to patriots, like FBI agents who might come forward, and we have one that's come forward, and he's talked to Bongino, he's talked to others. He's come forward, and he said, look, The FBI's put out the word all over the country. You're to classify as much of this stuff as you can as domestic terrorism, if you will. Spread out the data. Figure out some way to link it to January 6th, even though it has nothing to do with January 6th. And then send SWAT teams out. Make examples. This is what your government is doing. This is what the Federal Bureau of Instigation is doing. The Department of Injustice is doing. Then they have this phony January 6th committee. Oh, we've got more bombshells. We're going to get them going. So they've got October surprises they hope to flop out there. Now I read more and more 
that Donald Trump is leaning against running for president. Whereas weeks ago, I thought he was leaning towards it. I have not spoken to him about this. This is not first-hand information. I'm telling you what I've read. So they are trying to impact and interfere with the presidential election process while they pretend to be protecting it. I sure as hell hope you heard my monologue last Sunday on Life, Liberty, and Levin on Fox. I hope you did. Very, very important. What this government's pulling, what this prosecutor's pulling in the U.S. Attorney's Office, this guy Matthew Graves, the entire senior appointees at the Department of Justice are utterly and completely radicals. Radicals. Every single damn one of them an Obama retread. They're not driven by what's best for the country or the rule of law. They're ideologues. Just like this slob in the Attorney General's office in Albany, Tisha James. That's right, a slob. So here's two obvious instances, as pointed out by Margolis at PJ Media, where you have one witness who says he saw him declassify and a memorandum dated January 19 where everything related to Crossfire Hurricane, that is the Russia crap, was declassified. What's wrong? Are the three judges on the panel in the 11th Circuit? Deaf, dumb, and blind? You ever see the three monkeys with their eyes covered? And uh, Is that what they are? Apparently. Department of Justice knows this, but they plow ahead because they're not about justice. In the least. And then you have the former federal prosecutors. I don't give an S for a former federal prosecutor. There are a dime a dozen. There are thousands of them roaming the uh, countryside. Some are great. Some are not great. And I can't help it if Bill Barr has a, uh, has a personal grievance against Trump. That's not, that's not how I call things. Writes a stupid book. Too bad. Too bad. What does Bill Barr have to say? Who cares? So what did Donald Trump do, according to Cash Patel? Has he been interviewed by the Department of Justice? Not that I'm aware of. Why not? Why not? The memorandum on declassification of certain materials related to the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation. That's the memorandum subject title. What happened to that? Just because it's three judges, that is, three lawyers on a panel, doesn't mean anything to me. It just doesn't. I saw how the court and the judiciary failed us in 2020 with serious federal constitutional questions it chose not to take up in the face of a rogue court, particularly in Pennsylvania, but in some other places, too. I saw it. You saw it. Mark Levin.
The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Isn't it funny every time there's these horrific allegations against former President Trump or family members or their businesses or whatever, they're always false. They're always false. Now, I spoke about last hour, or maybe it was the top of this hour, where Obama kept his documents. And yet, in the case of Trump, it's a criminal matter because the head of the archives was appointed by Obama. Now they want to put another hack lefty in. And then you have this these cycle of lies and phony pseudo-events endorsed and supported by the idiotic comments of Bill Barr and others. And they're then quoted by news organizations who hated their guts. All right, let's move along here because there is other things I want to get to. You know, the Washington Compost had an opinion piece the other day. It's very interesting to me, by David Byler. Who's David Byler? Good question. He's a data analyst and political columnist. Now, this may draw your attention. I think it will. As early voting begins around the country, every political data point would appear to marginally favor the Democrats. Polls suggest they lead ever so slightly in key Senate races and in National House polls. Their candidates are raking in cash while Republicans struggle financially. And in special elections following the end of Roe v. Wade, Democratic turnout soared. But one key factor, primary voting turnout, looks better for the Republicans. According to pollster John Cuvillian, 52% of 2022 primary voters cast ballots in Republican races. 48% voted in Democratic races. That's a good sign for Republicans. High primary turnout signals enthusiasm for the general election, and the party with the stronger primary turnout typically does better in the midterms. We don't yet know whether this pattern will repeat in November, but a thorough examination of the data shows that Republicans do have a primary turnout advantage, even considering Dobbs and the other complexities of this election cycle. Republican turnout strongly in primaries this year. The GOP's four to five point turnout advantage can be measured in several ways. Measured by total votes, the GOP is the strongest it's been in five midterm elections since the Tea Party Revolution. 2010 and 2014, the last two midterm cycles in which Republicans enjoyed a turnout advantage. Voter interest was low, and Republicans won by outmobilizing Democrats. This year appears to be different. Voter interest is high among all voters, and Republicans have a primary turnout edge. The GOP surge is broad-based. In 33 of the states that Colgant tracked, Republicans added votes to their 2018 totals. Democrats increased their vote total in only 16 states. And Republicans saw their largest net gains in populous, closely fought purple states. Seven of the ten states where they gained the most votes 
feature a competitive senator gubernatorial race this year. Hmm. Put simply, the basic GOP turnout numbers look strong. The complications lurk beneath the surface. Dobbs diminishes, but does not erase the GOP edge. Counting for Dobbs diminishes, but does not wipe out the GOP advantage. Democrats improved in their overall primary turnout in post-Dob primaries, but the Republicans still retained a two-point edge. A roughly one- to three-point edge in the House popular vote would likely lead to a Republican takeover of the lower chamber, as well as a few upsets in key Senate races. Republican infighting boosted GOP turnout. Another complicating factor, Donald Trump's continued hostility to the establishment wing of his own party might be muddying the data. Trump in 2021 and 2022 endorsed outsiders against more traditionally credentialed Republicans, effectively waging a series of proxy wars against his party's old guard. This infighting could have had the effect of inflating GOP primary turnout as Republicans tried to work out their differences. But it could also signal disunity in November rather than enthusiasm. There's something to this idea. In states that featured a high-profile clash between a Trump-endorsed and an establishment favorite candidate, turnout shot up. In states without a high-profile Trump-endorsee, Democrats had a modest turnout advantage. Now, let me just add my footnote here. That suggests to me that we're in better shape. Because more people will turn out to take on the Democrats than even the Republican establishment. That doesn't mean that the true overall turnout advantage favors Democrats. Trump Trump made vocal endorsements in the most important contests. In such states as Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Georgia, and Arizona. If Trump had stayed silent in those races, Republicans still likely would have held a competitive primary and amassed a real or smaller turnout advantage. But Trump's were on the GOP establishment like turnout in pre-Dobbs primaries might obscure the data, making the Republican advantage look a little bit larger than it is. Primary turnout data is hard to interpret. Complete data, for comparison's sake, exists only for the previous four midterm elections, and none of those has featured this level of GOP infighting or a Supreme Court case as explosive as Dobbs. Any forecaster will tell you to be cautious with this data. But even a cautious interpretation of this data suggests a Republican advantage. Polls show Democrats ahead in races for the House and Senate, and Republicans recently lost a congressional special election in deep red Alaska. No, no, no. But they lost it, even though they got 60% of the vote, because Lisa Murkowski destroyed the voting system in Alaska. But by this metric, the GOP has reason for optimism. Optimism. In each state, we use the most accurate available turnout data. In some cases, the most accurate statistic was the total number of voters in each primary. And so they they looked at each state, and they say the Republicans have reason for at least cautious optimism. Every one of these Senate races where McConnell said there's bad candidates has gotten very tight. In Georgia, Herschel Walker has a slight lead in the latest polling. And my caveat is don't trust polling. But if you're going to look at the most negative polling three, four weeks ago, let's look at it today. 
It looks like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania is right on the heels of Fetterman. They wrote him off. Blake Masters in Arizona has a real shot now. They wrote him off. Bud in North Carolina has a very slight lead in North Carolina. They weren't sure about him. we got to get behind all these candidates, folks, all of them. There's a candidate by the name of Smiley we'll have on next week on the program. She is, what's that? Tiffany Smiley, neck and neck in the state of Washington for the United States Senate. And there are others. These are real battles, which is why I led the way to slam McConnell when he started putting down our candidates. What kind of Republican leader is this, quote-unquote? Why is he the Republican leader? He's a disaster. But these guys are fighting, and they're fighting hard, and these gals, too. They're fighting, and they're fighting hard, and same with congressional races. Don't lose sight of these House races. They're crucially important. You have these phony moderates all over the place who want you to believe in these districts, if you're Republican or if you're a moderate Democrat, so-called, and if you're an independent, you can rely on them. They're not Pelosi. Every damn one of them voted for Pelosi repeatedly. Every damn one of them. Every damn one of them voted for 87,000 IRS agents. Every damn one of them. Every damn one of them voted for the massive spending bills that have caused the inflation that you're experiencing. Every single one of them. Every single one of them voted against the combustion engine and energy independence. Now they'll have 15 different ways to try and explain it, turn themselves into pretzels, tell you how moderate they are, that this is the best they can do. That's the language of the left when they run for office. They don't all run like Bernie Sanders. They vote like Bernie Sanders, but they don't all run like Bernie Sanders. They lie through their teeth like Biden did. A phony moderate. Unity, you know, stuff like that. Every one of these bastards has to be defeated. Every single one of them. It doesn't mean I like every Republican. That doesn't matter anymore. This is a different type of an election. This is different. These are the enemy. They have embraced American Marxism. They're not playing games. They don't believe in the Constitution. They don't believe in American history. They don't believe in the nuclear family. They don't believe in capitalism or the private sector. They're marching with their boots, one behind the other. They say different things depending on the constituents. They're very cynical. They think you're stupid. But they all support the same thing, like this Gosheimer in Bergen County, New Jersey. Complete fraud. They're all over my state of Virginia. They're all over the place. I guess it's my former state of Virginia. But they're all over the place, the phonies, who want you to believe that they haven't voted the way they voted. None of them, not one Democrat, except on the border of all places, Cuellar, but no others have fought illegal immigration. None of them. None of them have fought critical race theory. 
None of them have fought the sexualizing of your kindergarten in the public schools. None of them. Now they'll tell you they oppose it. They haven't fought a thing. They want you to be fooled, as they do every election cycle. Now is the time to defeat them. There's early voting in states. Take advantage of it, ladies and gentlemen. Are we opposed to it? Yes. But if it's there, you got to use it. Or you can show up on election day. That's perfectly fine. But maybe you know people. Maybe your father, your mother, your grandparents. Maybe they're elderly. Maybe they can't get there easily. Take care of them. Help them to vote. Come on. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. Hillary Clinton at a Texas Tribune event today compared the recent Trump rally to a Hitler rally. We have Joe Biden comparing Trump and Trump supporters as semi-fascists. Now, this is the same media, the same party that talks about the promotion of violence by Republicans and conservatives. Oh yes, all those riots led by Republicans and conservatives. Last year, 2020, over the years and the decades, that's right, it's the Republican riots everybody's had to worry about. Not the party of slavery. Not the party of lynching, not the party of the Klan, not the party of Jim Crow, not the party of black codes, not the party of voter suppression, and all the rest of it. No, it's the Republicans and the constitutional conservatives, you see. Here's what she said today. Cut 20, go. And it's no longer just the whiff of violence, but the appeals to violence that we saw on January 6th, but have seen and heard since then. I do. I worry about it a lot. You know, I remember as a, as a young student, you know. Young student, f- you were a young commie even way back then. Go ahead. People get basically um, drawn in by Hitler. How did that happen? And I'd watch newsreels and I'd see this guy standing up there ranting and raving and people shouting and raising their arms. I thought, what's happened to these people? Why did they believe that? You saw the rally in Ohio the other night. Trump is there ranting and raving for uh, more than an hour, and you have these rows of young men with their arms raised. I thought, what is going on? So there is a uh, real pressure, and I think, I think it is fair to say we're in a struggle between democracy and autocracy. What else can these people say, ladies and gentlemen? You're now Hitler supporters. And so that will resonate over the weekend. That will be raised in the Sunday shows. That'll become now acceptable speech. Acceptable speech. Yet I don't have any Republican who has supported Hitler 
than of any Republican who pretended the Holocaust didn't exist. I want to tell you about a very famous Democrat, Joseph Kennedy Sr. That's right, Joseph Kennedy Sr. He was a complete sleazeball. Joseph Kennedy Sr., History News Network, Arriving at London in early 1938, newly appointed U.S. Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy took up quickly with another transplanted American, Viscountess Nancy Wichter Longhorn Astor. Countess Astor. Assured Kennedy early in their friendship that he should not be put off by her pronounced and proud anti-Catholicism. I'm glad you're smart enough not to take my abuse personally, she wrote. Astor pointed out that she had a number of Roman Catholic friends, G.K. Chesterton among them, with whom she shared, if nothing else, a profound hatred for the Jewish race. Joe Kennedy, in turn, had always detested Jews generally, though he claimed several of his friends individually. D. Kennedy seems to have tolerated the occasional Jew in the same way Astor tolerated the occasional Catholic. As fiercely anti-communist as they were anti-Semitic, Kennedy and Astor looked up, looked upon Adolf Hitler as a welcome solution to both of these world problems, Nancy's phrase. No member of the so-called Cliveden set, the informal cabal of appeasers who met frequently at Nancy Astor's palatial home, seemed much concerned with the dilemma faced by the Jews under the Third Reich. Astor wrote Kennedy that Hitler would have to do more than just give a rough time to the killers of Christ before she'd be in favor of launching Armageddon to save them. The wheel of history swings round as the Lord would have it. Who are we to stand in the way of the future, she said. Kennedy replied that he expected the Jew media in the United States to become a problem, that Jewish pundits in New York and L.A. were already making noises contrived to set a match to the fuse of the world. Maybe they were neocons. During May of 1938, Kennedy engaged in extensive discussions with the new German ambassador to the court of St. James, Herbert von Dirksen. In the midst of these conversations, held without approval from the U.S. State Department, Kennedy advised von Dirksen that President Roosevelt was the victim of Jewish influence and was poorly informed as to the philosophy, ambitions, and ideals of Hitler's regime. The Nazi ambassador subsequently told his bosses that Kennedy was, quote, Germany's best friend, unquote, in London. Now, columnists back in the States condemned Joe Kennedy's fraternizing. Kennedy later claimed that 75% of the attacks made on him during his ambassadorship emanated from, quote, a number of Jewish publishers and writers. Some of them in their zeal did not hesitate to resort to slander and falsehood to achieve their aims, he said. He told his oldest son, Joe Jr., that he disliked having to put up with Jewish columnists who criticized him with no good reason. Like his father, Joe Jr. admired Adolf Hitler. Young Joe had come away impressed by Nazi rhetoric after traveling to Germany as a student in 1934. Writing at the time, Joe applauded Hitler's insight in realizing the German people's, quote, need of a common enemy, someone whom to make the goat, someone by whose riddance, riddance, the Germans would feel they had cast out the cause of their predicament. I was, it was excellent psychology, he wrote, and it was too bad that it had to be done to the Jews, 
The dislike of the Jews, however, was well-founded. This is his writing. They're at the heads of all big business and law, etc. It is all to their credit for them to get so far, but their methods have been quite unscrupulous. The lawyers, prominent judges were Jews, and if you had a case against a Jew, you were nearly always going to lose it. As far as the brutality is concerned, it must have been necessary to use them. Brutality was in the eye of the beholder. Writing to Charles Lindbergh, Shortly after Kristallnacht in November of 1938, Joe Kennedy Sr. seemed more concerned about the political ramifications stemming from high-profile righteous anti-Semitism than he was about the actual violence done to the Jews. Quote, isn't there some way to persuade the Nazis it is on a situation like this that the whole program of saving Western civilization might hinge? It is more and more difficult for those seeking peaceful solutions to advocate any plan when the papers are filled with such horror. Clearly, Kennedy's chief concern about Kristallnacht was that it might serve to harden anti-fascist sentiment at home in the United States. Like his friend Charles Coughlin, an anti-Semitic broadcaster and priest, Kennedy always remained convinced of what he believed to be the Jews' corruption, malignant, profound influence in American culture and politics. He said the Democratic Party policy of the United States is a Jewish production, told a British reporter near the end of 1939, adding confidently that Roosevelt would fall in 1940. But it wasn't Roosevelt who fell. Kennedy resigned his ambassadorship just weeks after FDR's overwhelming triumph at the polls. He then retreated to his home in Florida a bitter, resentful man nurturing religious and racial bigotries that put him out of step with his country and out of touch with history. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Edward Ranahan Jr., HistoryNewsNetwork.com. You can check it out yourself. There's many books that have been written on this. And Joe Jr., who died... As a pilot of a plane that was filled with bombs to deliver over over the enemy in Europe. And I just wanted you to be aware of this. The Third Reich had strong voices in the Democrat Party. The Klan had strong voices in the Democrat Party. The Marxists today have strong voices in the Democrat Party. The anti-Semites today have strong voices in the Democratic Party. A Trump rally? Hitler? The irony. What she doesn't point out, of course, at the Texas Tribune event, is that Donald Trump is adored celebrated in Israel by the Jews. That Donald Trump was the greatest president in the short history of the state of Israel. That Donald Trump moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That Donald Trump cut off funds to the terrorist Palestinian Authority and signed the Taylor Act. That Donald Trump recognized that the Golan Heights were needed for security. 
by the Israelis and recognized it as Israeli territory. That Donald Trump was the force behind the Abraham Accords and so many so many peace deals that were made with Arab slash Muslim countries between Israel and those countries. That it was Barack Obama, one of the great anti-Semites as president. It's Joe Biden who's going to arm the Iranian regime with nuclear warheads. It's Talib who makes endless anti-Semitic statements without consequences. It's John Kerry who made one of the most horrific speeches in modern American history undermining the state of Israel at the United Nations. And it's Hillary Clinton who served in that administration and took step after step after step to weaken that country. And yet she compares Trump and his rally to a Hitler rally. To a Hitler rally. Hillary Clinton was quiet for a while, wasn't she, folks? I guess the statute of limitations must have run on a number of federal criminal statutes. Because now she's back. She's back as the evil, shameless, corrupt, demagogic, poisonous, cancerous, jerk. She's always been. She's always been. And you know what, Hillary? You often remind me of Eva Perón. Or is it Eva Braun? I can't remember. 